I believe in Christ, he is my king. With all my heart to him I'll sing. I'll raise my voice in praise and joy, in grand amens my tongue employ. Scriptures reveal the divine desires of the Lord in our behalf. Each of us should have a burning desire to search the scriptures diligently and daily to seek the will of the Lord in our life. Brothers and sisters, on very thin pages, thick with meaning, are some almost hidden scriptures. Hence we are urged to search, feast, and ponder. If you are lonely, please know you can find comfort. If you are discouraged, please know you can find hope. If you are poor in spirit, please know you can be strengthened. If you feel you are broken, please know you can be mended. Hi everyone, welcome to Go and Do. This is uh, the lesson for Jacob 5 through 7. Uh, today we'll be talking about the allegory of the olive tree. The Lord invites us to labor in his vineyard and helps us understand the mercy that the Lord has for us. Also, we can trust in God to help us when our faith is challenged. I'm Daniel. And I'm Feely. And I'm Sarah. Yes, we're joined by Sarah Bradley today to help us with this material. It had been a long while since I had studied this, like in depth, probably since... Your mission. Yeah, most likely. Because, I mean, I've read it, but like to actually break it down and understanding which what each part meant and all that, I hadn't really done that because it's like, oh, yeah, here's the allegory of the olive tree, you know, and then you read it and it's like... It's a commitment. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Do we call anything else an allegory? That's what I was wondering because we don't call the tree of life an allegory. Mm -hmm. This thought occurred to me last night as I was reading it. I was like, what's the difference between the tree of life <laughs> and olive tree? The confusing thing for me was that I'm like, they're olive trees, yet we're talking about a vineyard. And it's like, I thought vineyards were with wine and vines, not with trees. That's an orchard. Mm. Why is he not lord of the orchard? You know? <laughs> like, <laughs> Wait a second. What? You just shook my faith. Because right <laughs> <there. laughs> it ta constantly talks about the vineyard, the other part of the vineyard, the... Vineyard, you're thinking grapes, right? Yeah, or at least some kind of vine. But clearly olives but, grow on trees. But olives are squished like grapes are. Well, Sumerians yeah. And, and it's literally mind. a vine yard, right? <laughs> so it's a yard full of vines. I also think going back to the, the difference between this and the tree of life is the tree of life had people representing people. And the tam in the olive tree, it's trees and fruit representing people. Hmm. So I think that's a, a, a probably a key difference between the two mm -hmm. is allegories have symbols representing people or groups of people, whereas a parable teaches something. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think the, I think the key is the symbolism. It's for an a allegory. lot more symbolic. Yeah. Um, it makes sense because even if you think about the parables that Jesus taught, they usually did not get into using objects or other things as being people. It was always people doing different right. things. Right, and same with the Tree of Life, mm -hmm. right? It's the group of groups of people, but in this allegory, it's fruit and trees that represent people. So I I'll think that's that. probably what gives it, makes it an allegory, yeah. That's fair enough. 
Well, I, I've never seen this layout the way the manual lays it out on on the second section where it goes through the verses. This is the scattering of Israel. Mm -hmm. This is the ministry of Christ. This is a great apostasy, the gathering in the last days and the millennial. It really changed the way I viewed it. It's almost like an entire roadmap of yeah. what will happen in this life, in this earth life. I was so frustrated because I chose to study Jacob 5 before I looked at the Come Follow Me curriculum at all. And I was <laughs> like, dang it. Because it was like, well, maybe not. I don't know. I had this cool process where I figured it out. Like, I, as I was reading it this last time, I don't know if I'd ever had eyes to see it the way I was seeing it as I studied it thus last time. And I was like, that's the Nephites. That's the Lamanites. This <laughs> is the great apostasy. And so I'm figuring it out as I go. And then I come to the Come Follow Me curriculum and I was like, Oh. They have it all broken mm. down for you. <laughs> so I'm not a genius. Yeah. <laughs> but, but it was kind of cool to go through that process and realize that I could figure that out without the curriculum. But then I was also kind of like, where was this six years ago when I thought the allegory still was about trees? Yeah. I think the part that, that really stood out to me um, was the branches being grafted in the poorest parts that still gave good fruit. And it was kind of like we're going to take these from this good, healthy tree and we're going to put them in the bad parts of the vineyard. And then they still produced good fruit. And in my mind, the first thing that came out was that our circumstances that we grow up in or that we live in do not dictate what kind of people we are. Right. Yeah. You know, where you grow up or the, the family life you have or the, you know, geographic location that you grow up in or the socioeconomic status that you have cannot dictate to you whether you will be a good or bad person. It's up to you to really, are you gonna be good or bad? Are you going to be someone who tries to follow the Savior or are you going to make excuses for yourself? Well, I was born in these circumstances. You know, point, uh, the odds were against me to begin with, but they still produce good fruit. You know, what the one takeaway that I had was, um, sometimes we feel that other people are more privileged or lucky than us. They were born in America or they were born here or they had these parents. For, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I felt like this is saying the Lord has placed you in the right place where you can still bear fruit, you know? The, and he, he continues to dung, he continues to take care and in your, in something in the, in the lesson in, in at the beginning, it says something along your sphere of influence. Oh, yeah. Um, it says, He has given each of us a small area to assist in His work, our family, our circle of friends, our sphere of influence. And sometimes the first person we help gather is ourselves. Yeah. And I, th I thought that was, that's very reassuring to know that the Lord has placed you, and sometimes you are placed in a poor spot of, of soil and sometimes you're placed in a good spot if you recognize that you're in a good spot then you should be very grateful and do the best you can if you're in a poor spot you should understand you're not forgotten and whatever you're able to accomplish is still wonderful and great and according to this that opposition in all things yields forth better fruit and it's often the, the, the ones that are in the good spot that are the ones that go wild, you know? Well, and I love that the servant 
asks the question in verse 21 of chapter 5. He says, How comest thou hither to plant this tree or this branch? For behold, it was the poorest spot in all the the vineyard. And I think this isn't obvious. (laughs) It's not like everyone was like, yeah, we understand what he's doing. And I just love the Lord of the vineyard said, counsel me not. I knew it was poor ground, right? And then he he doesn't even explain. Mm -hmm. He says, I said unto thee, I have nourished it this long time, and thou beholdest that it hath brought forth fruit. And I just think, what what a beautiful principle that sometimes... Even we're like we have questions and we're not meant to counsel the Lord. His ways are higher than our ways. And if we stand faithful, we'll be nourished and we'll we'll bring forth fruit. We'll see it. And a lot of times the answer is, look, I know what I'm doing and I'm not going to explain it to you because it doesn't really matter. Yeah. (laughs) You don't need to know that right now. Yeah. It's not pertinent to to you and your sphere of of what you need to know. Um, Just know that this is the way it's going to be and it's going to work. Yeah. And I need you to put you know, forth the effort. On my mission, we had uh, a general authority, Elder Clayton. Elder Clayton came, and uh, it, he was doing uh, a state conference, and he opened it up to questions and answers. Mm. And one of the questions was was a was a, a woman who who kind of said, "Look at all the bad things," and she had a special needs son with her. And she said, I often come to these things wanting a miracle to occur, wanting you guys to heal my son, and the father's gone, and these health problems and work, and it was just it was just a very tough situation. And Elder Clayton used that scripture, and I remember that. He used that scripture to say, the Lord hasn't forgotten you. And, and what you have offered, although it you don't feel like it's... Um, the same as other people's lives have turned out, it's still good fruit. Mm-hmm. You you still give it good fruit to the Lord. Um, and I remember hearing that, and I thought, wow. Um, one, I, at first I was like, wow, that is a tough question. Let's How see is how he going to answer this? <laughs> and he turned to this chapter, to the, to to this lesson, and and kind of share that and and then I remember after he he spoke with her and, and, and they did other things but in a public setting you know that's that was the message you know at the beginning we see Jacob he talks about these are the words of the prophet Sinus like we don't know where Sinus is from <laughs> he might be yeah. from their brass plates mm-hmm. you know or another prophet that they knew of most likely the brass plates right um, but it's interesting because Jacob has heard his father talk about agency and opposition in all things. And he's also heard his older brother Nephi go on and on about Isaiah. And Isaiah's main message is the Lord does not forget his people or break his promises. And now he, I feel like he takes what he's learned in those. And now he says, let me share something I like. And it's the the story of the olive tree, the, the allegory of the olive tree, which then says, at all times, the Lord is involved. Another part that stood out to me was when they talk about the fourth spot in the vineyard. And it has both good and bad fruit. And instead of the Lord of the vineyard saying, okay, we got to go back and cut out all this bad fruit and then the bad branches, he decides to nourish it longer. And... The parallel is to the Nephites and Lamanites, that he kind of saw that things were 
kind of there was a schism in the family then there was kind of good side and bad side and throughout history it flips back and forth but in my own life when there's good parts and bad parts I can't just pray for the Lord to take out the bad parts mm. and just clean up everything for me you know yeah. or to for me to expect to be able to clean up everything in my life as far as like challenges and trials you know the ideal life would be no struggle at all, right? But that's teaching me that, no, sometimes it is okay to have something that's holding you back so that you can work through it. And he was trying to give it a chance to to work through it. Of course, we know what ends up happening to that tree, and quite frankly, the rest of the vineyard, right? Yeah. As it all goes to ruin. But it's interesting because he didn't just say, okay, we can save this tree by getting rid of all this bad stuff. Mm-hmm. He said, no, I'm going to let this play its course. Once again, it goes back to, you know, I know what I'm doing. Yeah, Let it happen. Me. Yeah. Well, and I love what you were saying earlier about um, God doesn't forget his people. Um, I, I kind of forced myself this last time studying the Book of Mormon to, I was like, gosh, dang it, I'm going to have a good experience with those Isaiah chapters. <laughs> and just went back and back and, and I just kept reading and studying and wouldn't you know, I had a really good experience with those Isaiah chapters. And... After that, I'm coming to appreciate so much more this allegory because it's those Isaiah chapters all over again, right? <laughs> it's about this family of Abraham and this covenant that God's made. And he, he keeps saying, you know what? All that's important to me is that I can preserve as many of you as possible. And I'm going to reach out over and over and I'm going to put you in places that you think are going to be your destruction. And ultimately, that's going to save you and that he reaches out time and time again. And I love that message that in our lives, uh, it's not how often, I I remember as a missionary thinking like, I just ruined my area because (laughs) of some mistakes that I had made. And I I had a, a young missionary with me and I just thought we're toast. And I thought it was the end, right? And just how grateful I am for a merciful God that's like, Sarah, I'm gonna reach out again and again and again. In fact, I'm going to reach out until the very end and don't reject me. I love that message. Yeah, and he it, it even points out in this allegory that there's not a lot of laborers, right? Yeah. That there's not this whole fleet of people out there with everyone with one little task to do. That there's very few of them and that they labor diligently to try and do whatever the Lord gave them to do. And probably some of it they looked at each other like, we're going to do what now? You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> like, okay. But they did it anyway. And a lot of times I think that um, we look at the grand spectrum of things. There's 15, 16 million members of the church right now. And there's 7.5 billion people on earth. There's yeah. not a lot of us, right? Yeah. In, in perspective, there's not a lot of us, but he's given us a work to do. And when we think about how those laborers responded, that should probably be our response too. Yeah. It's funny. One, one thing I noticed that I really liked was how many times it says, Let's go down, and, and they went down and labored in the vineyard. And in verse 72 of that chapter 5, it says, And it came to pass that the servants did go and labor with their might, and the Lord of the vineyard labored also with them. And they did obey the commandments of the Lord of the vineyard in all things. And in the lesson, at, in, the, in the beginning, in the introduction, it says, God knows and loves his children, and he will prepare a way for each of them to hear his gospel, 
even those who have rejected him in the past. And then, when the work is done, all those who have been diligent in laboring with him shall have joy with him because of the fruit of the vineyard. And what stuck out to me is no one works harder than the master of the vineyard. Even at times when the servants are ready to say, I think this is it. I don't think there's anyone else. We Let's burn it up. He'll say, no, let's go prune about it one more time. Let's go dung, dung, dung about it, fertilize it one more mm-hmm. time. Let's go, you know, try just one more time. And it reminds me a lot of... Um, the conversation that uh, Abraham had with the Lord about uh, in Lot about Sodom and Gomorrah Sodom mm. about um, well if I can find a hundred righteous guys will you spare the city okay if I can find ten if I can find and he's absolutely <laughs> you know but I- but in this scenario you know I just you see just the leadership of the Lord of the vineyard he's involved He's not absent, and he's the first one to go and do whatever he can, even when sometimes us as servants are, are saying, I think, I think we're done. He's, not, he's still not done. But I think it's also a, a really good example of what good leadership is like. You know, I'm going to ask you to do this. I'm going to go down there and work with you. It doesn't necessarily mean that he's saying we're on the same level. You know, we are equals. Because he still is the one in charge. He still is the one making the commandments and they still follow. But our Heavenly Father sends the Holy Ghost as his emissary, you know, to kind of do that work with us. And if you look at it as a partnership between us and him, I think it's no more clear than when you're a missionary that you can do a lot of work on your own <laughs> or even as a companionship. Um, but without the Spirit, you're like super ineffective. Yeah. And there's those moments when you try to push things or there's maybe discontent between you and your companion and you're like, it's okay, we got to go teach this lesson. And it goes terribly. And you come out of there and you're like, that was nothing. There was nothing there. And you know that you're trying to labor diligently, but you're not doing it with the Lord's help. And when you do it with the Spirit, it's a completely different experience. Those lessons you come out of and you're like, wow, that was not us, man. You know, yeah. you just look at each other like, That wasn't us. I don't know what happened in there, but he touched somebody. And maybe just me, but he touched somebody. It's funny because I've I've been in those scenarios where um, you, you, uh, at least on my mission, you you go to teach and and maybe you didn't prepare. Maybe you trust that you're charismatic enough or you know the scriptures well enough. You can kind of wing it. Um, and, And a little bit of pride creeps in. And, and then everything is just off a little bit and you just have to go back and humble yourself. And, you know, I think, I, I, I don't know, I think it's an important thing to remember that, that we as laborers and helpers, that the Lord will take us regard, wherever we're at. Mm-hmm. And with him, we can be very effective without him we we can't do much you know it's his work um there's a lot of cool principles um having to do with aligning our will with the master of the vineyard Uh, and maybe this is me reading between the lines and seeing a lot of subtlety here but in verse 49 the lord of the vineyard is kind of mourning the loss of um 
the loss of all the fruits gone bad, right? And he says, what more could I have done for my vineyard? Mm. And then a super subtle thing that I, I don't think a lot of people notice in verse 50 is, but behold, the servant said unto the Lord of the vineyard, mm-hmm. spare it a little longer. And I think that is a beautiful moment where the Lord of the vineyard is like, what What could I have done? I mean, he talks over and over. I mean, right in th- verse 51, it grieved with me that I should lose the trees of my vineyard. And it's the servant that comes and says, let's spare it. And I think that's the moment when the, the Lord of the vineyard says, ah, my servants get it. Yeah. They're, they're one with me. They understand now. And it, that's a great transition from earlier when he says, hey, why did you throw those guys in poor ground? And he <laughs> says, counsel me not. And then, you know, 30, 40 verses later, the servant is saying, hey, spare it a little longer. And I don't think the Lord of the Vineyard had any intention of burning it then, but I think what a cool moment for the master of the vineyard to realize that his servants have his vision, that this is the process that we're out to to save. And I think that's the cool moment for you when you're standing to give a talk or you're teaching a lesson or you're ministering and you have this moment where you're like, those weren't my words. Mm. And you realize that you're the servant that is, has aligned your will with God's. And those, those moments are beautiful. And they uh, help us to be humble and realize that we're really not, we're really not in charge here. Well, and I think the, the servant probably said that knowing that sparing it a little longer didn't just mean sitting around and waiting. Yeah. It meant a lot more work, like a lot more work for everyone. And it wasn't that he was like, yeah, let's just let it be. You know, it was, no, we got to, we can give this another chance. And the Lord looking at it knowing, wow, this is not a slothful servant. This isn't someone saying, no, I don't want to tear all this down and start burning. Let's just wait. He's saying, we can save it. Let's keep working. Let's prune. Let's dung, dung. Let's, you know, dig about it and whatever. We can do whatever we can to save this. And he's like, all right, yeah, I, I don't want to lose this, so let's do it. Yeah, if you want to do it, let's do it. Yeah. Even though he probably still knows inevitably we're probably going to lose these trees, yeah. he's like, yeah, let's do it. If you're willing to put in the work. Well, it's also like, for example, on your mission, especially tracting, <laughs> you, you sometimes get discouraged because, you know, it's not very effective. You know, one out of like 50 houses maybe is nice to you, (laughs) right? But is it important, are those door approaches that you do when they say, no, I'm not interested in that? Is that equally important that people have an opportunity just to hear, to be invited? I I think sometimes we get caught up in the, the dream outcome of, oh, absolutely, and let's get baptized tomorrow and, and, uh, but I think, I go back to the beginning where it says he will prepare a way for each of them to hear his gospel, even those who have rejected him in the past. So it's not just a one-time thing, you know, and and it may be, you know, I, I, I think of my mission, I love the area book. I, I, because in the area book, you know, oftentimes you can neglect it, you, you don't update it, you find, you know, the same people. But I found a lot of really good people to teach in the area book. And I found some to baptize in the area book. And I thought to myself, there's a missionary a long time ago who came and found this person 
and to them they put them in the area book like they were supposed to and maybe never thought they would ever join mm -hmm. and then you go check that area book again and you and, and then they they were ready from the first invite to the next one, something happened. The Lord was probably working with them, right? And we don't know, and it's not for us to say when the time is. The time is for the Lord. And I think about this lesson, and I wonder how could we apply it in our lives? Do we apply it with, how do we work in a relationship with someone? That's not, how do we prune it? When do we know when it's enough? Or, or with our children? When do we invite them? When do we help them? When do we know it's enough and we need to burn the vineyard in, a, in, <laughs> an, in an essence, right? Because Lehi kind of did a little bit of that. He turned and he said, you know, this is the last thing I'm telling you, Laman and Lemuel, because I perceive your past feeling. Mm -hmm. And it was that. But before that, there were many occasions where he implored them with all the, I think it said something like, all the feelings of a tender parent, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know? And, and I feel like there's a lesson here for how do we judge, how do we know when and what to do at what time and when it's enough? When do yeah. we leave this harmful relationship? When do we seek out a new one? When do we, you know? I think it's crucial in those instances to, to do that with prayer and with the Spirit, to know this is what will help this person. This is how I can reach this person at a deeper level. And this is when, you know what, this person might be actually negatively affecting me. You know, and that's probably the hardest thing in the world because we always want to be like, no, I can change them. Mm -hmm. I can make a difference in their life. And yeah, in many ways you can, but you can't alone. Yeah. And yeah. If, especially if they're not receptive or ready. And I think it goes for family members. It goes for people in our wards that we're ministering to. They might just not be there yet, you know. And it doesn't mean that they're a lost cause. It doesn't mean that you're giving up on them. But just to kind of, sometimes it's necessary to back off and allow them to process things and go through life a little bit and allow the Lord to work on them, like you said. And then the next time around, you make a suggestion, hey, let's go to this activity or, hey, why don't you join us for family home evening mm -hmm. or something like that. And it's a totally different ballgame the next yeah. time around. I can't remember who said it, so you can totally discard the statistic, but I think <laughs> I heard it on my mission, and I think it was by a 70, but he said um, that on average it takes about seven encounters before somebody joins the church, right? So you think about that, and if you just imagined everyone with a meter above their head in the <laughs> entire world, right? Some are still at zero. Isn't that wild? Yeah. That some people have never encountered, they're like, what is this church, right? And some people are at six and they think they're fed up. And then the seventh one comes, you know, and, and maybe that's not an exact science, but I think that there's kind mm -hmm. of a meter there, right? Well, there might be some that's 30. Right, absolutely, <laughs> I, like on average, right? right so right. Some, people, some people that first time, their heart is ready, and some people on the 37th time, their heart is ready. And I just think our job isn't to decide whether or not we get to withhold the invitation or, or inviting or exposing them to to Jesus, right? I just love the recent invitation by President Nelson. Mm. Um, talk, find opportunities, seek out opportunities to feel, to share your feelings about Jesus. I think, oh, do I do that, <laughs> right? I was with, um, I was ministering to a sister last year who um, probably is about the mental capacity of a 12 year old, she's super sweet. And we were in McDonald's, like just eating McFlurries, talking. <laughs> And I had just gotten back from a trip to Spain and I was showing her pictures and she was like, wait, stop. 
and I, I showed her and it was a statue of a man laying on a bench. And I was like, yeah, that's a really cool one. It's actually the savior. If you get really close, you can see the prince in his feet. And she was like, this is so cool. And she was like, I love him. In the middle of a McDonald's, I felt like the world just stopped. And I was like, oh, I need to talk more <laughs> about my feelings about Jesus and make it normal rather than, because those moments, they, t- they touch our hearts, right? The Savior is there. And uh, I think, man, how am I going to do that every day? And not just, I, how do I make it, I don't want to say casual because Jesus is never casual, but. But not so formal. Yeah. Not, not in a way that I have to have an appointment to talk about it. How I feel about <laughs> him. And I love that President Nelson's invitation wasn't like, go minister or, you know, fi- like he just said, hey, you know him. Will you share your feelings about him? Yeah. And what a spirit that brings into any conversation. And it did to me in McDonald's, right? Yeah. <laughs> I think that's actually a really good uh, segue into chapter 7, where, where we meet Sherem. Um, the first Antichrist. I have that, the first Antichrist, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, he's, he's basically... Um, it's interesting how they describe him, how he's preaching ab- against um, Jacob, but not necessarily, I don't know, does it say he's preaching against the gospel? Well, uh, what I noticed is he, first he was preaching against that th- they had gone too far, that we should be obeying the law of Moses. Right. And so in a way he's attacking continuous revelation and Jacob's sta- station and responsibility to preach the gospel and authority basically and then he gets kind of a little bit carried away into well if you say the Lord is how you say he is then show me a sign because that's not the Lord I believe in I think you're wrong so I found it interesting to me what really stuck out is he was attacking continuous revelation which is a very similar attack that the church gets nowadays. Mm-hmm. No, why don't you only believe in the Bible? You don't need something else, you know? You, you know, it's mm-hmm. kind of... God said everything he needed to yeah. say, you know? Well, and, and not just not just continuous revelation. I mean, ooh, he says uh, that he did, that he might overthrow the doctrine of Christ. Yeah. <sighs> right? This isn't like <laughs> attacking the bottom of the tree, you know, like the little things on the side. This is like... Going for the trunk this of the tree. is the root of what yeah. we believe. The doctrine of Christ, I mean, you go into, what, Second Nephi chapter 32? I mean, like, that's it, right? Yep. This is the gospel, and he goes to the heart of it. And so I think that was probably why it was, I, I think there were probably, for lack of a better term, I think there were probably other haters at the time. I think he was, he went for the jugular. This was like a straight attack at the core of the doctrine of Christ. Rarely will someone be as bold as he was without knowing that there's going to be people that agree or that that can be easily swayed. And it says in there something about how he used the language of the people. And I saw someone ask a question about, um, does that mean that he wasn't from there? And I don't know that that necessarily means, you know, literally he spoke a different language and he spoke the language of the people. I think he just knew how to identify with them well and knew how to, what words to say and ways to say it. He knew the lingo. He knew the the kind of way to to speak to people that was charismatic, that kind of got their attention. Because once again, you're not going to say that kind of stuff, especially in public, and put yourself on the line if you don't think that you can convince people. Well, it says... In verse 3, it says, 
and he labored diligently that he may lead away the hearts of the people and so much that he did lead many hearts yeah and he knowing that I Jacob you know was he sought to to confront Jacob you know mm -hmm. and then for like you said he said he was learned he had a perfect knowledge of the language of the people wherefore he could use much flattery and much power of speech according to the power of the devil so I I trans you know if we were to to grab um, this guy and bring him to our day what would he look like he'd probably seem very educated very very good at um, you know speaking always on lands on his feet right. in every argument and, and what do we have and this isn't an attack on anything it's just but most news cycles have like just this hot box of people arguing with each other and we deem the correct point of view by who the person who can discredit the other mm -hmm. or seems more charismatic or or has more mic drop moments <laughs> he's, right he's probably the master of the mic drop right where he's walking out there and saying the predominant belief is m the majority of the people probably still believe and follow Jacob but then he goes out there and says, well, what about this and this and this and this? And then it's probably just like... And he's gotten a following that yeah. way, right? Because it says, in so much that he did lead away many hearts. This isn't at the beginning of his... Uh, this isn't at the beginning of his, mini uh, his m ministry, right? This is... He's already got some following and some, some people are already in it because we know at the end of the chapter that Jacob has to labor diligently to undo the damage that Sherem has done, you know? I also just... The way he starts, I mean, I, I just, I, I think first words are so important. And he's, he goes and he approaches, and the first thing he says is, Brother Jacob. Mm. And I think, ooh, that is the appeal of flattery. And, like, I read that and I was like, ooh, I feel <laughs> slimy, right? Because <laughs> normally when I, when we, that's how we address people at church, right? But you know that the things that are about to come out of his mouth have nothing to do with this brotherly feeling, <laughs> right? This is like... Ugh, I like, and then I just love the um, the way uh, ja uh, Jacob's so smart, and <laughs> it's not like he doesn't know what Sharon's doing. And I think, gosh, the temptation every time when you read something online, you want to like throw your, you know, say you want to you want to drop the mic and right. And I just love that that's not what Jacob does. The very first thing Jacob says is, "Deniest thou the Christ who shall come." Hmm. And I think, ooh, inspired questions, right? <laughs> right to the jugular, though. Yeah. Like, literally, um, I know what you're about. I know what you're up to. And I'm just going to cut straight to the quick here and say, do you deny the Christ? Yeah. Whoa. <laughs> yeah, because that how Sharon decides to answer that question moves where the conversation goes. And I think yeah. this is a disciple of Christ. This is somebody who knows how not to, I mean, roll in the mud, for lack of a better term. Well, and by calling him brother, not only does he establish himself as an equal immediately, he's saying, you know, Jacob is a leader in the, in the community, in, in the land, but he's saying brother, he's not saying leader or addressing him by like an authority. Mm -hmm. This is like, I'm automatically elevating myself to your same level, mm -hmm. we're the same, you know? Yeah. And Jacob's kind of like, all right, look. <laughs> Nice out of the Christ. <laughs> yeah. One of his first attacks is that for no man knoweth such things. That's kind of what Sherem is telling Jacob. Eh, whatever you believe, no man really knows that. Come on. Um, 
But it's interesting how in our day, there are so many competing philosophies and people, and when you explain, hey, you know, I am a Christian, I believe in Jesus Christ, one of the first things is how do you know? People want to know how. Um, what's the proof? Show me. And I often think, what would be enough? Mm. What would be enough proof for you? And for me, it's very simple. As I live the teachings, I, f I see how I feel without it, I see how I feel with it, and I feel great. And as I learn faith, just a simple thing as I'm a child of God, is that a true statement? And I can feel that that's true. What would prove it? Yeah. There, there is no such thing. Even in the sciences, almost everything is like, oh, we have dinosaurs, we have bones. Do you? <laughs> um, at first it was Jurassic Park. Now you're telling us they all have feathers. You know, <laughs> it, you know it's like, but prove it. Well, mm. here it is. Yeah. Okay. And, and then likewise, we s they say, prove it. Well, here's the scriptures. Read them. No, that's, that's too much work, I, you know, or I don't want to. Yeah. What kind of proof do you really need? Um, and for me, I, I just I find all the evidence in you leave, live the teachings and the testimony of the Spirit teaches you. Yeah, well, and I love, Jacob even talks about this. He's, right after he asks him all these questions, he says, do you deny Christ? And he says, look, just what you said, right? No man can know. And then Jacob comes back and he says, well, do you believe the scriptures? And I have these underlined, and I can't remember if I got this from the curriculum or somewhere else, but I have these underlined as the three pillars of truth. Because first he brings in the scriptures, and you just think about your own life, right? How the scriptures have been a pillar of truth, something to stand on, quite literally. And then he comes in verse 11, and he says, Behold, I say unto you that none of the prophets have written or prophesied, save they have spoken of concerning Christ. So not only do we have scriptures, but we have prophets presently that are testifying that Christ is going to come. A second pillar, right? That this isn't somebody that's dead in the ground that wrote in a book. This is somebody standing in front of you that has the gift and power of an authority of God, right? And then if that's not enough for you, right? We, you need at least three pillars to make us still stand. Verse 12, he says, and it also has been made manifest by the power of the Holy Ghost, right? I mean, you want to talk about a firm foundation to stand on. Jacob's like, look, all things are here to testify that Christ will come. We have the scriptures, we have prophets. And if you listen, the Holy Ghost will testify that yeah. to you too. But why is Jacob able to understand that? Why is he able to basically totally rebuff this challenge? And I think it's because, like going back to the allegory of the olive tree, he had healthy roots. Mm. He had a strong foundation and, and understanding of the gospel and a strong testimony. If he didn't, and this guy comes to him and starts challenging him in front of the people, and he starts to get embarrassed because he can't really adequately answer him, mm -hmm. and then the guy is like, see? See what I'm talking about, folks? You know, not even your leader can respond to me. Then all of a sudden it's like, oh, no, you know, he, and he can fall. And so what we learn from that is if, if, those if and when those challenges come to us, the only way that we're going to withstand that is starting now to fortify our roots, to, to have a better foundation of our understanding of the gospel. You can't expect to have an answer if you aren't working on it now. You know? It's funny because I think that Jacob's a master of teaching the gospel. 
That's all he's done. Yes. And what does he do with Sharon? He starts at the beginning. <laughs> Scriptures, prophets, and the Holy Ghost. R right? Like very simple things. He's not, okay, well, let me explain to you how Kolob rotates this <laughs> way. And it just generates a field, uh, you know, like, it's like, no, it's, it's very yeah. simple. And it's likewise with us. Because I think sometimes the sherem or that those feelings can dwell within us. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. If we abandon, like you said, those three pillars in the teachings of Christ, then before you know it, you can lose your testimony. Mm. And what you once felt was true and 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 you you have to it's it's very much like a vineyard. You have to prune it. Nourish it. You have to nourish it. You have to put a fence around it, cover it when it's bad weather, you know. And that's true of anything. A relationship's the same way. You have to spend time. You have to serve each other. You have to, you know, your kids, it's the same way. You have to play with them. You have to teach them. You have to correct them. You have to be involved, you know. And then, but we live in a world where we, we kind of put everything on cruise control and then wonder, why don't my kids talk to me? Why does my <laughs> wife hate me? Why does this happen? You know, and, and a lot of the times it's, are we are we pruning? Are we Nourishing. putting effort? In verse 15, And it came to pass that when I, Jacob, had spoken these words, the power of the Lord came upon him, insomuch that he fell to the earth. And it came to pass that he was nourished for the space of many days. Cool connection. And then you jump back to Jacob uh, chapter 5, verse 8, And it came to pass that the Lord of the vineyard and the servant of the Lord of the vineyard did nourish all the fruit of the vineyard. There's a parallel here. Totally. He's using that word again with purpose, mm -hmm. right? He's saying for the space of many days, which who knows how long that was, that he's yeah. this dude's passed out or something. I don't know what that means, but he's being nourished. He's being taught the gospel. And I think when he finally comes back to speaking again, he's a completely changed person. Absolutely. Yeah. And he's like, I need call the people together because I got to fix this. Yeah. I also think if you go back to... Um, I just think, uh, again, for the first time, maybe I'm starting to string things together as a cohesive story. And Jacob, at, at a young age, Jacob sees the Redeemer. We learn that, right? That as a boy, Jacob's seen the Savior. Uh, he has that gift of seership. And Jacob has been nourished and been nourishing this relationship with God his whole life. Uh, and I think that's yeah. also a counsel for us well, too. What am I doing to nourish my relationship? Also at the beginning, it, when uh, when uh, Lehi tells Jacob, he says, take care of your brother, mm -hmm. listen to him. Yeah. And I, 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 I can't recall it now, but I think I heard the word nourish there as well. Or um, I'd have to go back and look. Uh, so the last part is about how they're talking about how the Nephites are kind of wandering around. They're, they're escaping constant attacks from the Lamanites. Um, I'm not sure if that meant physically wandering around or if they're like kind of spiritually trying to avoid spiritual attacks. Um, obviously, there were physical attacks too. Uh, and I don't think that we necessarily are under attack in that way physically today. But the early saints were definitely persecuted, and maybe today in our in our world today we're persecuted in the sense that um, the views and positions of the church are becoming less and less popular. In many ways, it's kind of like, oh, that's the old way of thinking. You guys need to get with the times, you know. And that's kind of the 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 onslaught that we're facing now, as far as the attacks. Um, 
In Jacob chapter 6, verse 5, it says, Wherefore, my beloved brethren, I beseech of you in words of soberness that you would repent, come with full purpose of heart, and cleave unto God as he cleaveth unto you. And while his arm of mercy is extended towards you in the light of day, harden not your hearts. And the word cleave comes up twice in there. And so what does that mean? It's adhering to something firmly, closely, unwaveringly. And that's, that's what it comes down to. I think the challenge that we're facing as members of the church in the popular world will only increase as kind of like what our, what our views and our standards are will constantly be under attack. And they'll constantly be, be looked at as um, out of date or something, you mm-hmm. know. And he's kind of saying, look, you cleave unto God, he'll cleave unto you, and you'll be all right. That's kind of what he's getting at. Right. Well, in Numbers 25, uh, trusting in God and the rock of their salvation, wherefore, I love this phrase, they became as yet conquerors Mm. of their enemies. Uh, And I just think about life. Sometimes enemies aren't always a person. Maybe they're vices or things that we face, but that... And the formula is simple. If we trust God, we'll, we'll come off conquerors. The Book of Mormon is truly the keystone of our religion, and that a man and woman will get nearer to God by abiding by its precepts than by any other book. And if you then go and do what he would have you do, your power to trust him will grow. And in time, you will be overwhelmed with gratitude to find that he has come to trust you. There is no end to the good we can do, to the influence we can have with others. Let us not dwell on the critical or the negative. Let us pray for strength. Let us pray for capacity and desire to assist others. Let us radiate the light of the gospel at all times and in all places, that the Spirit of the Redeemer may radiate from us. My dear brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ invites us to take the covenant path back home to our heavenly parents and be with those we love. He invites us to come, follow me.